Well, today we're going to continue with our somewhat staccato study of James. Although I do have a number of other ideas for sermons on my heart, I've been really compelled to stay in this book because it has such a practical emphasis on action. And that's a, a call for action that we're going to hear very powerfully today. Action is most fundamental to our walk as Christians because it's the embodiment of our response to God's call in our lives. As I'm inspired by God's act of love for me, therefore I will do what he asks of me. It's like for like work, not in the mind or heart, but in the feet, hands and mouth in thanks for the work of Christ on the cross. So if I could ask you to turn to James 1 verse 12, if you don't have your Bible, um, it will come up here. So we start. Blessed is the man who perseveres in temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life that he promised to those who love him. No one experiencing temptation should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not subject to temptation, to evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire conceives and brings forth sin, and when sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And it's this last verse that we're going to look at this week, verse 18. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As a quick recap, because it is some time since my last sermon, in the section that I read just now, we met James urging us to continually um, practice perseverance because it makes us more useful Christians. What we do here on our life on earth, well, it might be unpleasant, but we should be able to put up with it because we can look forward to our reward in heaven. And for this reason, we should do, as James says, and keep going when things seem a bit too tough to handle. He then goes on to discuss temptation. How do I respond to temptation? Where does it come from? Who is responsible? And what is its nature? If we want to blame God for temptation, we need to consider the proposition that if God does everything perfectly, then if it were God who were tempting us, we would not be able to resist it because God is just too powerful and too good at it. So what would be the point? We would be perfectly tempted and we would always fail. We would never learn a thing and we would never move forward in the process of sanctification. But worse, every time we failed, we would sin. And that's just totally inconsistent with, with God's nature to imagine any circumstance in which he would delight in causing us to sin. And this gives us the first argument James has, which is that the very nature of evil makes it utterly separate from God. In the next verse, James gives us his second argument about evil, which is the nature of man, our very own natures. And uh, he says, rather each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Although Satan tempts us, the blame for acting on those temptations remains only with us. There is a cycle of desire, deception and design that defines a path from lust 
to sin. God's word recommends dealing with those issues more permanently at the level of the mind and thus nip it in the bud as early as possible. In Romans 12, 2, Paul counsels, do not conform yourselves to these, this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. We have to realize that the stakes we are playing for are high indeed. And James doesn't mince his words. He says, if we allow sin to reach maturity, it gives birth to death. We have to expose what we are to the clear light of God, recognize just what we are and deal with it. James spent some time demonstrating what God is not. Now he goes on to tell us what God is. Well, God is the absolute opposite of sin and evil. Every good thing comes from him and him alone. And we can trust this to be the case completely because he never changes, not even in the slightest way. There is no alteration or shadow caused by change is what the text says. Now if good things come only from God and we desire good things, then we know where we must turn. Sin does not come from God, therefore it can never deliver anything good whatsoever. So why then should sin have any, alter, any attraction for us all? Okay, that was my last sermon in a nutshell. Hands up all those who would like to have them that short in future. Oh, yes, I saw some hands there. I'm going to have to ask the deacons to take names so we can counsel these people later. Okay, now that we've understood how God wants us to deal with sin, we can move on to study verse 18. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I'm going to break this, this verse down into to little bits. And I uh, don't want anybody who comes to our uh, men's group on Thursday nights to abuse me for this, because I still think it's important. <laughs> so we start with, he willed. So who is this he? Well, he is God the Father, maker of the universe and all that is in it. He is omnipotent and omniscient. He knows everything, he sees everything, he can do everything. There is none like him, none more glorious and marvelous. Everything begins in him and ends in him. And why should he be that important? Well, it's important because it establishes credibility. Let's think about that. Would you like to go to see a movie that stars Dave Tastard? Or would you rather go and see a movie that starred, say, Tom Hanks? Well, of course, you want to go and see Tom Hanks because you know and recognize him to be a great star, a man of great talent. He has credibility. We recognize that and we are attracted to it. So we should know for the same reason that anything that is begun by God has weight and worth and we must take it seriously. So what about this word will? Well, you know, when I think about will, it's something along the lines of using an imaginary force to move something. You know, like if I put that pen there and I concentrate on it really hard, it should be... No, no, it's not moving, is it? Now, this is not what James is talking about. And um, you may well have a translation in your Bible that uses a word like purpose, which I think conveys a much clearer meaning of, of what he's trying to say. When I looked in the dictionary, there were some really helpful definitions that showed us just how strong this word will ought to be seen as. For example, one definition is a conscious adoption of a line of action. Okay? 
a conscious adoption. And another is strength of mind and moral fiber. I don't see much about wishful thinking or moving things without touching them in any of these definitions. When we think about God's will, do you think God had any doubts about whether bringing our birth by the word of truth was the right course of action? Did he ponder over it day and night, consult with his peer group perhaps, or uh, talk to his wife, or maybe even do a cost-benefit analysis? Of course not. He acted decisively and sovereignly because he is God. It is completely consistent with who he is to make absolutely the right decision without wavering or wasting time and with deep understanding of the consequences of his decision and an uncompromising commitment to his objective. We can always trust that God will do the right thing. Always. So, he willed. He willed to. It's a small word, but very important. In a previous life, it was my annual misfortune to generate the company marketing plan. And this was quite a big, thick document, 70 or 80 pages long, and it bulged with analysis and strategy and figures. A lot of the figures, I have to confess to you, were made up. What was very important was the language that we used. In fact, it was so important that head office sent us this little manual to make sure that we used the right form and the right language. And the word to was part of that. A typical statement would be something like, we aim to grow our market share in the food, drink, and tobacco market segment to 53% by throwing big parties with lots of beer and dancing girls for the customers. (laughs) Well, that's what I felt like writing a lot of the time, I can tell you. Okay, this word to is like a pointing finger that draws our attention from a specific point here to there. Our eyes follow it and we concentrate on what comes up next. And in this case, we ought to be concentrating really hard because it's God's finger that our eyes are following. He willed to, he willed to give us birth. Let's not fool ourselves that God had no choices when considering how to deal with our sin. He could have allowed us just to be consumed by his wrath and wiped us out and just started again. And, you know, that's a fully deserved consequence of our sin. But instead, God showed us the depth of his loving nature. And this should be our example. He gives. This isn't like us. When we are wronged, we want to take, don't we? We want to think of ourselves. And God doesn't just give us another start where we have to drag our past around. Hey, is that you again, Tastard? What are you doing here? Just remember you're only here on sufferance because you have been a very naughty boy. God isn't like that. God gives us a fresh and clean start in Christ. This birth is a gift we do not deserve and we cannot earn. We are given it simply by accepting that we are sinners, seeking God's forgiveness and accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this rebirth now because it's very important to understand just how big a change God has brought about in us because it should influence the way that we live every day. We are not just changed. I want to use a different word. We are regenerated. We are made brand new. Now, those of you who have heard my previous sermons know that I like to bring a bit of science in and today is no different. So, 
I want to talk about the difference between change and regeneration by talking about Sir Isaac Newton. Now, for those of us who were busy carving their initials in the desk at the back of physics classes when we should have been paying attention, Sir Isaac Newton was a gentleman who lived between 1643 and 1727. He was a really outstanding and remarkable man. He was a physicist, mathematician, astronomer, natural philosopher, alchemist and theologian and he turned out to be one of the most influential men in human history. He wrote a book called Philosophe Naturalis Principia Mathematica which for your fund of useless information was published in 1687 but it is considered to be one of the most important books in the history of science because it laid the groundwork for most of classical mechanics. I mean, I'm not talking about greasy people with spanners here, I'm talking about how things work. The reason that we have all the mechanical stuff today is because of some of the laws that this man wrote about. In this work, Newton described universal gravitation and three laws of motion which dominated the scientific view of the physical universe for the next three centuries. And it's one of these laws, the first law, that I'd like to talk about. Now, Newton, of course, he had a hard way of saying it. Okay, so there exists a set of inertial reference frames relative to which all particles with no net force acting on them will move without change in their velocity. Okay. Simply put, every object in motion will stay in motion or at rest unless acted upon by an external force. And I brought along something to give you a practical demonstration. Okay, this plumb bob here provided my hand's not wobbling around too much. It's just going to hang here, okay? It won't do anything at all unless I give it a push, okay? It'll stay where it is and it will stay moving unless I put an external force on it, okay? Now, that might seem very obvious to you, but it's very important in a lot of things that we use every day, and I'm not going to bore you with those because this is supposed to be a sermon and I don't want to see anybody carving their initials on the desk at the back. If I stretch this illustration a little bit, Newton's first law can also be used to describe our behavior, because we will carry on living our lives in pretty much the same way unless we are influenced by an external force. And this is where God comes in. He gives us a push and gets us moving. But when we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, something a lot more interesting and fundamental happens. We don't just move, we also change. Because we change from this boring utilitarian plumb bob just to something really like a flower. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge change. And I know this is a nasty plastic one, but it still makes a point. Why should this be important to me? Why must I be born again? And most, most importantly, it's because the Bible tells me that I can't go to heaven as I am. We read in John 3, verses 3 to 7. Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can a person once grown old be born again? Surely he cannot re-enter his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, Amen, I say to you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh 
is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born from above. Let me tell you, I want to go to heaven because the alternative is truly horrific. Some years ago, I can remember looking into the fire, and this was back in Zimbabwe, so we didn't have anything clever like a wood burner. We just had an open, an open fire, and uh, I had a really big pile of coal going on there, and it was, you know, when you get that, that nice pyramid of coal, how it burns so, so hotly and so red. And often you can, you can look right inside because there's a little, a little gap in the coals and you can see how enormously hot it is inside there. And my, my mind was wandering a bit and I remember looking into that gap and just thinking, if I stuck my hand in there, what would happen? How painful it would be. And then I realized that, <laughs> I mean this is real fire and brimstone stuff, but it's true. This is what hell would be like. Hell would be like experiencing that exquisite agony and never being able to withdraw your hand, ever. It's going to be like that forever. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. And I'm telling you that God does not want you to go to hell either because He has provided this regeneration for us through the death of Jesus on the cross. He willed to give us birth. He willed to give us birth by. If you recall my earlier speech about marketing plans, you may remember the word by featured there in regard to dancing girls being the means by which we would achieve our goal of increasing market share. This word by says that here is the specific tool I'm going to use. If I have to undo a screw, well, I'm going to have to use a screwdriver I can never undo a screw with a spanner because a spanner is specifically designed for nuts and bolts. This word by tells us that we are going to get a look at God's tools and how he uses them. This is a very important opportunity because although we don't have God's power ourselves, he does allow us to use his tools. And when we do use his tools, we need to be as good at using them as possible. Any apprentice will tell you that watching how a journeyman uses his tools is one of the most valuable lessons there is. So he willed to give us birth by. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth. Was that a word of truth? No. It is the word of truth. There is only one. In this context, we are speaking about the gospel. There is no other way to be reborn except by God's saving gospel. You know, Roy was talking about his mother earlier, about her saying that she had done many good things in her lives, in her life. Sorry. And this is this is a terrible and widely believed fallacy. We can do good things as much as we like, but they will never get us to heaven. Never. And God's word is very specific on that. If we're going to give unbelievers a word of truth, this ought to be it. Because the recognition that good deeds are not sufficient is one of the first steps to salvation. So God willed to give us birth by the word of truth. 
He willed to give us birth by the word of truth that. That tells us that God has decided to do something with us. What is most significant is that now he is able to do something with us only because of the saving work of his gospel. Before, we were useless, separated by God, from God by sin. But thanks to Christ on the cross, we become useful workers and witnesses to his greatness. The question is, will we take up our tools and put them to the test, or will we be content to give them a bit of a polish from time to time and keep them in a glass case? We are warned quite specifically about the wisdom of this course of action in Matthew 25. It's quite a long um, section, but I, I want to read it to you because it's very important. It will be as when a man who was going on a journey called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Immediately, the one who received five talents went and traded with them and made another five. Likewise, the one who received two made another two. But the man who received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came back and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came forward bringing the additional five. He said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come, share your master's joy. Then the one who had received two talents also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Since you were faithful in small matters, I will give you great responsibilities. Come. Share your master's joy. Then the one who had received the one talent came forward and said, Master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. So, out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. Here it is back. His master said to him, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I did not plant and gather where I did not scatter? Should you not have then put the money in the bank so that when I got it back, it came with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. The point is clear. God has given each and every one of us different skills and he expects us to use them for his glory, for a return. But God is not unreasonable. The expected proportion, sorry, the expected return is proportional to our abilities. However, we are not excused from making the effort. Although we do not see him face to face now, he will return just as the master of the servants did and demand an accounting cabinet of shiny unused tools is not what I want to have on that day. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth that. He willed to give us birth by the word of truth that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As humans we typically think mostly about ourselves 
and this will often cause us to miss God's plans and motives. In considering Christ's sacrifice for us, we might begin to think that it is all about us, that we are the focus. Christ died for me. God loved me so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for me. Well, yes, these things are true, but we must be careful to put them in their proper place. Imagine that you are in a theater. There is a singer alone on the stage who is starkly illuminated by a bright spotlight. By their strutting and posturing, one might think that every part of the performance is about them. We long to be then the most important person in the house. But where would they be without the audience? I reckon that that performer would look a bit foolish carrying on like that just for their own benefit. And we have an audience too, an audience of one, almighty God. And just as the stage performer works for the benefit of his audience, we must be conscious of and work for ours. To get his applause is a prize beyond measure. What we are, we are because of and for him. Although he is not in a spotlight and we cannot see him, he is the light. He has created and saved us for his glory and his purposes. His purpose for us is to be a demonstration of that as first fruit. And to explain that, I want to read to you from Leviticus 23. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you come into the land which I am giving you and reap your harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, who shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, that it may be acceptable for you. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall do this. The first fruits referred to in this passage were the first and best of the crop, and their quality showed what might be expected from the rest of the harvest. Now we might understand that a farmer would take these and look at them and say, well, I'm going to put these away for a rainy day. However, it was God's requirement that that first and best of the crop was offered to him. To speak of believers in this way, it is as if God is saying of us, well, look at this marvelous harvest that I have created by my word, the first and best of many more to come. This is the apex of my creation. The quality of what God has brought about by the sacrifice of His Son stands as a testimony to all of creation of His glory. How should we feel about this? Proud? This might be a natural reaction, but really, what do we have to be proud of since nothing of what we are is anything to do with our own efforts? It seems to me that since we represent the best of God's creation, at the very least, we ought to live appropriately. But do we? As I consider this, I'm ashamed of my own failings, and I'm conscious of the same in those around me. It, it arises, arouses a great passion that I don't know adequately how to express. You know, I, I want to shout. I want to shout in such a way that you and I will really 
listen, so that you and I will be changed from hearers to doers. God deliberately gave us birth. And not just from our mother's wombs, because although that is a miraculous and marvelous process, there's nothing particularly unusual about that, because all living creatures are born that way. But specially and specifically, and more marvelously than anything you or I can imagine, He gave us spiritual birth to live as citizens of heaven for eternity. And my response... My response, will I read his word consistently, memorize it and keep it in my heart? Will I tell the people around me what God has done for me? Will I live my life publicly and privately in the way that God instructs me to do? Or maybe these things are just a bit too much bother, or perhaps they might be embarrassing. When I search for motivation to live according to God's will, and that not my own will, which clamors constantly, insistently inside me. Here is what I must remember. God deliberately chose me and gave me the most valuable gift that can be given. Not because I deserved it, but because He loved me, and specifically for His glory. It makes me a great deal less of a man if I rub mud on it or leave that gift in the cupboard for special occasions. And sadly, I confess to you, this is what I often do. But I want to change. And this is what James hopes for us to do, as he goes on to say in the next few verses. Know this, my dear brothers, everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of a man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filth and evil excess, and humbly welcome the word that has been planted in you, and is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his own face in the mirror. He sees himself, then goes off, and promptly forgets what he looked like. But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres, and is not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. You know, what God has given us is just as obvious as your own face in a mirror. How can we go away and forget that? How can we? Are you going to be a hearer or a doer? That is my question for you today. And what are you going to do about that in the weeks to come? To help with this, I've given you some questions for you to think about at home. When you think about the parable of the servants and the talents, ask yourself, well, what are the talents? What are the things that God has given me to make a profit with? And am I using those things to make a profit for God's glory? Does your behavior day to day show you to be a first fruit, the apex of God's creation? If not, how are you going to change it? Lastly, in what way does your gratitude to God for His salvation motivate you to work for Him? Let us pray.
Father, sometimes you make me feel like a small child who's been corrected by his father. And, Father, I, I need that. I need that discipline. Thank you for telling me what I need to focus on. Father, I pray that I would never set that aside, that nobody who has heard your words would set that knowledge aside. But Lord, that we would go away from this place to use the talents you have given us and to be doers of your word and not just hearers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.